It was Philip Yancey who said, the church is like manure. Pile it up, stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out, it enriches the world. As a boy, I was raised on five acres of land. I was surrounded by farms. There were times in the year when the smell of manure was obnoxious. It was so powerful, so strong, that it singed the nostrils and singed the memory. We would conclude, uh, Mr. Sagasser, he must be uh, spreading manure on his crops, getting everything ready for a new season. You do realize that today's manure is tomorrow's miracle grow. Somehow, some way, something so gross could be used for something good. As a boy, I wondered, how is it possible that something that smells so gross could be used to actually grow something good? It's with that thought in mind that I reached this conclusion the church is not the only thing like manure. Your suffering is like manure. Can we just be honest with each other today? Uh, Your suffering, my suffering, it stinks. It's obnoxious. It's grotesque. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking. The suffering that you endure, the suffering that I endure, suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. But at the end of the day, suffering stinks. But sometimes suffering can serve as a fertilizer of faith for our soul. Sometimes, many times, oftentimes, God uses the suffering of your life to grow your faith. It is with that thought in mind that I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Today I want to read in your hearing Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 to 30. Once you've taken your Bible and found that place of Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Today I want to talk to you about growing through suffering. Growing through suffering. Philippians chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you'll be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. These 18 verses are a gift in Paul's writings. It's not common for Paul to be so transparent and vulnerable regarding his current situation. But here, he speaks about his suffering. The suffering that he had experienced and he was currently enduring that the Philippian church had heard about and they were greatly concerned for his safety. And so Paul, just in an act of, of transparency and openness, he, he writes about his suffering. He tells the church that he is He's growing through his circumstances. It's verses 12 to 14. He is growing through his criticism. It's verses 15 to 18. He's growing through his crisis. It's verses 19 to 26. He's growing through his conflict. Verses 27 to 30. He begins by telling the church, listen, God allows us to suffer so we can grow through our circumstances. He begins by writing, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The word advance means to make progress. You might be tempted to think that what happened to Paul would hurt the spread of the gospel or would hamper the spread of the gospel. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, his circumstance, as stinky as it was, was being used by God to advance, promote the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just remind ourselves where Paul is and how he got here. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail cell. He's under house arrest. Um, He is there suffering in the capital city of the empire. Now, how did he get there? Well, let's go back to the year 51 A.D., In 51 AD, Paul is on his second missionary journey as a vision of a man from Macedonia. He interprets that vision as that's Jesus Christ himself calling him, come over to Macedonia and help us. He goes to a leading Roman city, a leading colony in that area. He goes to Philippi and there, by the power of the Spirit of the Lord, he establishes a church. Some of its charter members included people like Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was a dealer in fine purple cloth. She was a person of means. She opened her house and she allowed the church to gather right there in her living room. Lydia would have been a charter member of First Baptist Church of Philippi. 
Not just Lydia, but also the slave girl. Her story is also told in Acts chapter 16. The slave girl that was demon-possessed, that demon enabled her to predict the future, and she made a lot of money for her master by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and Silas. She was kind of making things chaotic and confusing. He turns around, cast out the demon, made everybody upset because his, uh, the slave owners, they wanted to arrest Paul and Silas and throw them into jail. But that slave girl, not only was she relieved from her demon possession, but she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. I'm sure that she was one of those charter founding members of the church. There was also the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas were in his dungeon, locked in the stocks. That jailer heard Paul and Silas as they sang all the way up through midnight. He also felt the earthquake that shook, that loosened the chains, flung open the jail cell door. And because he assumed that the prisoners had escaped, he drew his sword to take his life. Paul says, no, 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 Uh, we are still here. Do not kill yourself. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in. He said, sir, what must I do? to be saved. And on that night, the chains of the soul of that Philippian jailer were loosed. He accepted Jesus Christ, not just him, but his entire household. I'm sure that the Philippian jailer and his family, they were part of the charter members of the church. Paul was there for a little while. After he left, the church never forgot their founding pastor. Their love for him grew exponentially. His love for them also grew. Years passed, And when it came time to collect a love offering for the suffering Christian saints in Jerusalem, Paul says the Philippian church, they gave generously. They gave above and beyond their means and their resources. When Paul took that offering, not just from the Philippian congregation, but from many other of the congregations, when Paul took that love offering to the suffering saints in Jerusalem, he went to the Jewish temple as was his custom. And when he got there, the Jews who hated Paul because they regarded him as a, as a traitor, as a turncoat, he now proclaimed that Jesus is Messiah and they did not support his missionary ministries. So they, they brought up false charges against Paul. They said that he brought a Gentile into the forbidden area of the temple complex. They arrested Paul, threw him into jail. The rest of Paul's story is told for us in the chapters of the book of Acts, we discover that he was in a jail in Caesarea for some two years. Finally, he appealed to his Roman citizenship. He asked for a day in court before Caesar. He survived a shipwreck. He was snake bitten. He was taken to the capital city of Rome. There, he was under house arrest 800 miles from Philippi. And every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. Not just any Roman soldier, but we're talking about the palace guard. This is the secret service of Caesar himself. And they would come one by one, six-hour shifts, and they would lock themselves to Paul in a chain as he was there under house arrest. This was their version of an ankle bracelet. They made sure that Paul didn't escape. And every day, as long as Paul was there, he was able to talk to at least four soldiers and anybody else who would come by to visit. And and he was there and he told them why he was in chains. 
He would tell the first one that came, and then six hours later, when that guy left and his replacement came, Paul would tell him why he was in chains and about the good news of the gospel. And even under the cover of night, when the guards shifted and the chains began to rattle and Paul woke up, he would tell that person about Christ. And early the next morning, when the fourth person would come, he would tell him about Christ. And this went on for day after day. And Paul reaches this conclusion about his circumstances. He said, if, if it wasn't for my circumstances, I would not have this opportunity to share the gospel with the fraternity of the palace guard. If it wasn't for this stinky, horrible circumstance that I'm in, if it wasn't because of this, I wouldn't be able to share the gospel with the Roman soldiers. He says the effect of this circumstance is not only that they understand why I'm in chains, but he goes on to write that most of the brothers, not all, but most of the brothers in and around Rome, they speak the gospel more courageously. That word speak is proclaim, but not proclaim in the sense of preaching a sermon like I'm doing today. That word for speak is everyday common language. You and I would call it gospel conversations. Because of Paul's circumstance, God was using that not only to evangelize the Roman soldiers that were chained to him, but also to bolster the boldness and effectiveness of sharing the gospel in everyday conversation among most and many of the believers at the church at Rome. And Paul is saying it's because of this circumstance that this good is happening. I mean... Most of us would not want to be imprisoned and have a shipwreck and be snake bitten and be under house arrest for many, many months. Most of us would not want that. We would think that's a terrible circumstance. But Paul says that God's using the circumstance to advance his kingdom. I bring that to your attention just to remind you that your suffering, whatever it may be, that your current circumstance, whatever it is, if it's something that stinks, if it's something that is overbearing, if it's something that's burdensome, if it's something that's hurtful, if it's something that you think is harmful, listen, friend, God can use it to advance his gospel. God can use it because he's positioned you in a place that without that circumstance, you wouldn't be able to share that part of your story of the good gospel. If God can... Use Moses' staff and David's sling and Shamgar's ox goad and Samson's donkey dentures for his glory. Then certainly God can use Paul's chains for his glory. And if God can use Paul's chains of his circumstances, then God can use the chains of your circumstances for his good and for his glory. It is Warren Wearsby who says that when you are suffering, you have two choices. You can either rejoice because of what God's going to do through your circumstance, or you can complain because God has not changed your circumstances yet. And Wearsby said, I would encourage you to rejoice and not complain. Rejoice because God is going to... He's going to do something great through your circumstances. Don't complain simply because God hasn't changed your circumstances yet. Because I came this morning just to remind you that sometimes suffering can serve as the fertilizer of faith for your soul. 
Paul says not only is God growing me through circumstances, but secondly, he is growing us through criticism. Paul says that there are some who preach Christ out of envy, jealousy, rivalry. There are others who preach Christ out of goodwill. Those who preach Christ out of goodwill, they they understand why I'm in chains. They know it's because I'm defending the good news of the gospel. Oh, but there are other people and they proclaim the gospel and, and, and they preach it out of envy and jealousy. Some people were jealous of Paul. And who are these people? Other preachers. I'll just confess to you, preachers are the strangest people on the planet. I can say that because I is one. I mean, we are some of the strangest people on the planet. You would think that we would encourage each other. We'd be a Barnabas for each other. We'd really bolster each other up. But sometimes preachers get jealous of other preachers. They get jealous of their ministry, jealous of their success, jealous of God's favor. And so when they see somebody who may be kind of down, they'll kick them while while they're down. And that's what some preachers were doing to Paul in the first century. In the first century when Paul was under house arrest in Rome around 61 AD, these other preachers were saying things like, you're not listening to that convict, are you? You're not not pulling his podcast down on your phone, are you? You're not listening to him. He is so liberal. All he talks about is grace to the exclusion of law. Well, I don't even know if he knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can imagine that some of those jealous, envious preachers, they were saying some of that against Paul. Now, can we be honest? I don't know very many people, I don't know anybody who loves criticism. Most of us would prefer compliments over criticism, wouldn't we? I mean, if somebody's going to say something about us, let them say something nice. Let them give us a compliment, not a word of criticism. Sometimes, criticism might be warranted. I mean, if you're not doing your job, if you're being dishonest, if, if you're being negligent on your responsibilities. I mean, sometimes criticism might be warranted. But in our story, it doesn't seem to be. The only way and only reason that they are criticizing Paul is simply because they're looking at his circumstance and they're saying, listen, you can't trust him. Look where he is. Look what has happened to him. Surely that's a sign that God no longer favors the one named Paul. And how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond? What does he say to the criticism? In essence, he says, what's it matter? He doesn't respond. It's at this moment that I want to say the apostle, I mean, don't you want to defend yourself? Don't you want to speak up? Don't you want to set the record straight? Don't you want to put them in their place? Don't you want to fire off some type of email to really let them know who's boss? I mean, don't you want to say something? And Paul just says, what does it matter? Friends, sometimes the best way to handle criticism is with silence. What does it really matter? We live in an Instagram age where people are quick to retaliate and have blistering posts. We live in that culture where we think we've got to respond. We've got to defend ourselves. We've got to set the record straight. We've got to give a piece of our mind. 
And Paul just simply says, what does it matter? As long as Christ is preached, as long as the gospel is advancing, sometimes your best response is no response. Now that's counterintuitive to our culture, isn't it? That's counterintuitive to how we feel. And yet Paul, as he's there in prison, he says, what good is it going to do? What difference does it make? As long as Christ is preached, let them say whatever they want to say about me. I'll just keep on sharing the good news of Christ with my lips and with my life, with my life. Not too long ago, I came across a statement from Mac Brunson. Mac Brunson simply said that love is how you respond to people who irritate you. Now, I got to be honest, it, it takes uh, somebody with mature thought to reach that conclusion. And sometimes I don't have enough spiritual maturity and neither do you. <laughs> but if, if love is, is, is how we respond to people who irritate us, we would do well to take a, a lesson out of the page of the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter 1 when he just reminds us when people criticize you, what difference does it make? Sometimes the best answer is no answer. Sometimes the best response is no response. It's not that Paul's a doormat. It's not that he's just letting people run all over him. Because later in the letter, he will specifically address conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. So sometimes a, a word is needed, but not all the time. And we need the wisdom of Solomon to know the difference between when we need to speak and when we need to be silent. Sometimes God uses the criticism and it grows us because I came to tell you that there are times when suffering serves as a fertilizer of faith for your soul. Paul continues to write, he says, beginning of verse 19, I, I will rejoice. I will rejoice because God is growing me through crisis. I will rejoice, he says, because of your prayers. And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, it will turn out for my deliverance. Friend, can I ask you, how do you make it through a crisis? How do you make it through a crisis? It could be a relational crisis. It could be a problem in your marriage it could be a problem with the children. It could be a problem with mom and dad. It could be a difficulty or a crisis at work. It could be uh, something with uh, uh, your own uh, physical health. How do you make it through a crisis? What do you do? I'll tell you what Paul said. The way I make it through a crisis is because of your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. I read those words and I see the order of those words. And it can't escape my observation that Paul mentions first, it's your prayers that help me through this crisis. Yes, it's the Spirit of Christ that helps me through. But even before he says the Spirit of Christ, he says it's your prayers. 
Now, if you were to interview me, if you were to ask the question, how do people make it through a crisis, the first thing I would probably say is the help of God Almighty. It's the help of the Spirit of Christ. And Paul doesn't diminish that. He doesn't deny that. But he simply says, the way I'm going to be delivered is through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of God. It's not only that we should pray for one another. We must pray for one another. Deliverance is hanging in the balance. When we don't pray for one another, it just might be that that person might not be delivered from their crisis. Paul says, I'm delivered from my crisis because of your prayers and the help of the Spirit of God. It's your prayers that help. Now, this is a shameless, selfless plug, but this shows us the necessity for a house of prayer meeting tonight at 5 o'clock, and you all need to be here. And the reason we need to be here is because we desperately need to pray for one another. Somebody's deliverance is hanging in the balance. We must pray for one another. It's through the prayers of the people of God and the help of the Spirit of God that Paul says will turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance is the word that's elsewhere translated as salvation. Now, some people have tried to really downplay that. They say, well, Paul really doesn't mean salvation in the sense of being saved. I mean, what he means is deliverance or salvation, um, being physically delivered from prison. And what he's saying is the way I'm going to get out of this uh, incarceration is through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of God. And I understand that explanation of the passage. However, I can't get around the words. The word Paul uses for deliverance is salvation. And the words that follow that are more words that are usually used to describe salvation. Words like, I eagerly expect and hope not to be ashamed. That word hope, it's a word that means a calm confidence in the ability of God. You and I use the word hope. We say, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope to get a good report from the doctor. I hope to pass the science test. Every time we use the word hope, there's a glimmer of doubt in it. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is found and ground in Christ and Christ alone. Paul says, I have great hope in my deliverer. I have great hope in the one that gives me salvation to the point that I will not be ashamed. That word ashamed, it, it doesn't mean just to have guilty feelings. It doesn't mean just to be embarrassed. I, I hope I'm not embarrassed by this. No, that's not what Paul means. The word ashamed literally means condemned in judgment. He says, because of your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, I will be delivered. And that deliverance is bound in my hope in Jesus Christ so that I will not face any shred of condemnation or judgment before God Almighty. Now to me, that sounds like a lot of salvation language. But what does Paul mean? Is Paul saying that this crisis is going to save me? Is Paul saying that I am saved because of your prayers? No, I think what Paul is saying 
is that because of my salvation, I'll make it through this crisis. Because of my salvation and because of that salvation, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So because of your prayers, your prayers will help me make it through this crisis. The spirit of Jesus Christ will help me make it through this crisis. I need God Almighty. I need your prayers. I need the help of the Holy Spirit of God. And because of all those things, I will make it through this crisis. It will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, we desperately need each other. Don't forfeit the wonderful opportunity to pray for one another. Don't forfeit the glorious advantage of being able to come alongside someone else in their moment of crisis. Because I'm probably not the only one who could give testimony this morning that it's in the midst of a crisis that I really lean into my salvation. Is that, your, is that your story? At the moment of crisis, at the moment of a difficulty, at the moment of a heartache or, or, or headache or uh, at the, the moment of, of, of stinky suffering, at that moment you lean into your salvation. Now, we would all testify that we are safely saved in the hands of Christ. There's nothing that we do for that salvation. We are fully in Him but I just got to be honest that when I smell the foul stench of my own suffering, that's when I press in a little bit harder to my salvation. And I thank God all the more for my deliverance. Paul says, I'm confident I'll be delivered. I'm confident that, that, that this, uh, what's happening to me, this crisis, it will not affect my standing before God Almighty. It will not affect my salvation, for I am saved in Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm also confident that I will exalt Christ in my body, whether in life or death. I will exalt Christ. That word exalt means magnify Christ. I will magnify Christ in my body, whether I'm living or dying, in, live, in life or death, I will magnify Christ. Can I ask you an honest question? How in the world can a mere mortal magnify the sovereign Savior of the universe? How do we make Jesus bigger? How can we magnify him? How can we exalt him? I mean, we're nothing. We're scum of the earth. We are dirt. We are, we were nothing. How can we, mere mortals, magnify the holy, sovereign, righteous one of the universe? How can we do that? It seems impossible. He is so big, we are so small. He is so infinite, we are so finite. How can we magnify Jesus? Once again, it's Warren Wiersbe who proved to be very helpful when he said, the stars are always bigger than the telescope, but the telescope has a way of making the stars even bigger. The telescope has a way of bringing into crystal clarity and bringing up close that which appears to be so far away. And Wearsby says, for far too many people, Jesus is nothing more than a far-off, fuzzy figure of human history they say he might be a good man maybe a rabbi perhaps a great teacher but his importance his influence his significance for far too many people 
the significance of Jesus is fuzzy, it's far off. And Warren Wiersbe says that in your crisis, in your suffering, it's like a telescope. And how you respond in your body magnifies Christ to a watching world. So unsaved people see how Christians handle the stinky crisis situation of your life and the way you handle yourself, it magnifies Jesus. You magnify Jesus in your body, he says. What does that mean? How do I magnify Christ in my body? The thoughts in my mind. The words out of my mouth. The feelings and attitudes of my heart. The actions of my hands and my feet. All the things that I use my body for. That's how I magnify the Lord. And especially in a moment of crisis. Especially in a moment of a stinky situation. You magnify Christ and you do it in your living and in your dying. You are magnifying, you're exalting, you're telescoping how clear, how big, how great Jesus is. It was the African-American preacher who reminds us the bigger we make Jesus, the smaller we make our problems. The bigger we make our problems, the smaller we make our Jesus. So if we're going to magnify Christ, we focus more on him than the crisis. We focus more on what he's going to do instead of what the crisis is going to do to us. So Paul says, I will magnify Christ in my body in living or dying. Then he comes to that popular, familiar verse of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. But for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's pretty poetic. It's on bumper stickers. Some people have it on a t-shirt. But what does it mean? For me? To live is Christ, to die is gain. I like what John Calvin said when he translates this very difficult Greek sentence. He says, this is what it means. For me, Christ is gain in living and dying. That's how he translates the verse. For me, Christ is gain in living and dying. Everything is so wrapped up in Jesus that whether I'm living or dying, I win. I gain. I have the advantage. Because in Christ, I have everything that I need. He helps me in the circumstance. He helps me with the criticism. He helps me in the crisis. He helps me in life. And he helps me in death. For I know to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The moment I stop breathing this terrestrial air, I'll start breathing celestial air. It's a win-win situation. For me, to gain is Christ in living and dying. And then Paul gets to one of the most transparent couple of verses in anything he ever wrote. He said, to be honest with you, I don't really know what I want. Because there's part of me that desires to depart. If I departed, I'd be far better. But then there's part of me that wants to stay with you so that your joy may be complete. And he says, I'm torn between these two. I don't know what. I desire to depart. What does it mean to depart? Well, for starters, that's a, it's a military term. It means for a soldier to take down his tent. It's a nautical term. It means for a sailor to pull up anchor and set sail. 
It's imagery for death, dying. Paul says, I I desire to die. How can he say that? Well, I'll be far better. I'll be in a land of perfection. See, I live in the land of the dying, and I'm going to the land of the living. We think that we live in the land of the living, and we're going to the land of the dying. We couldn't have it more backwards. We live in the land of the dying. And when we die, we go to the land of the living. It is a win-win situation for us. Paul says, I desire, I desire to take up my tent and die. I desire to pull up anchor and set sail. I desire for Christ to come and get me and take me home to heaven. It will be far better. But also know that if I forfeit heaven just for a little while longer, It means fruitful labor. I get to share Christ with others. We get to share life together. I'll get to see you, he says. You'll get to see me. Our joy will overflow. So, I'm torn, Paul says. I desire to depart. I could stay for fruitful labor. You know, for your sake, I'll forfeit going to heaven right now. If I had the choice, if it was up to me, I'll forfeit so I can stay with you. Friends, would you forfeit heaven to stay just a little bit longer with anybody in this sanctuary? I mean, would you forfeit going to heaven just to stay a little bit longer? Just so you could share life and and have joy and love right here on earth. Paul says, uh, listen, in my living and in my dying, I'm going to glorify and magnify Christ. Christian, when it comes to your death, you have nothing to be afraid of. Don't be fearful. Death is not an accident. Death is an appointment. Death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road. Death is not a wall that you hit. It's a door that you walk through. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear in life or death. Paul says, when you experience a crisis, you have nothing to fear. Because either God's going to get you through it or God's going to take you from it. Either way, you win. What is Paul telling us? He's just reminding us that sometimes suffering can serve as a fertilizer of faith for your soul. He comes to the last portion of the passage, verses 27 to 30. He gives us our fourth point, that he is growing through conflict. Not only is he growing through the circumstance and growing through the criticism and growing through the crisis, but ultimately growing through conflict. He says, listen, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens to me, Whatever happens to you, whatever the world does to us, whatever the culture throws at us, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He uses two verbs in these final few verses that are very descriptive and very picturesque. Stand firm, contend together. Stand firm, it's a military term. It means to be on point. Don't let anything knock you off You stand your guard. You stay at your post. 
until your commander comes and gets you. You stand firm. Don't let anything waver in your life. Don't let anything knock you off of your, of your place of, uh, of, of, of guarding. Don't let anything knock you off point. Don't let anything in the culture, don't let a woke society, don't let anything contrary to the word of God, do not let that dissuade you. You stand firm. It's a military term. You stay at your post until your commander comes. Don't you see the connection? You stand firm until Christ comes back. You stay at your post. Stay at your place of ministry. You do what God tells you to do until Jesus comes and gets you. And then he says, contend together. Your translation may say, contend as one man without fear. The literal language says, contend together. It reminds us once again that we need each other. Your sanctification is not an individual exercise. We are sanctified collectively. We are sanctified together. So we contend together. We worship together. We sing together. We serve together. We pray together. We're on mission together. We evangelize together. We live in holiness together. We've got to do this thing called life together. We cannot survive on our own. This is what made COVID so difficult for so many churches because we were so scattered. And now we need to come back together because we are a together community. We contend together for the faith. We need each other. We can't survive alone. Your sanctification is not an individual exercise. And God can use anything at his disposal to sanctify us, make us holy. So he's going to use our circumstances. He's going to use criticism. He's going to use a crisis. And he's even going to use conflict. It's going to stink. It might be painful. It might be obnoxious. Could be overbearing at times. But friends, God's going to use it as a fertilizer of faith for your soul. You say, Pastor, where do you, where do you get that? I mean, you've been kind of walking through the passage. But you get to verse 29. And Paul says that you have been granted. The word is actual gift. You have been gifted. Not only belief in Jesus Christ, but also suffering for the sake of him. We would all agree that our faith in Jesus Christ is a gift. It's a gift. It doesn't originate with us, it originates with him. He opens our eyes unto his salvation. We receive that salvation as we receive a gift. We receive it. It is a gift from God. We would agree that faith is a gift from God. But Paul also says even your suffering for his sake is a gift from God. Have you ever thought about it that way? Now, it's not suffering just for suffering's sake. It's not suffering a bad grade just because you didn't study for the test. No, you can't blame Jesus for that one. you got to blame yourself for that one. I mean, sometimes we suffer just because of bad mistakes that we make in life. Sometimes we suffer for the sake of Christ because we're defending His truth 
his gospel in us and through us. Paul says, when you suffer for the sake of Christ, that's a gift. And God uses it to fertilize your faith. Friends, I'm just convinced that sometimes suffering serves as a fertilizer of faith for your soul. How could something so gross be used to cause something else to grow? I asked myself that question all the years of growing up. Mr. Sagasser would spread the manure, and boy, did it stink. And I would think to myself, how can anything good come from that? That smell is gross. The grossest act of human history took place 2,000 years ago. I'll quote the Roman philosopher Cicero. Cicero said of crucifixion, and I quote, it is the cruelest, grossest, most hideous form of execution. And on a given Friday in the third decade of the first century, Jesus was grossly crucified. He stumbled and staggered through the streets. He had a cross beam on his back. He barely looked human, let alone alive. He was beaten as a criminal, not because of any crimes he committed, but because of all the crimes you and I have committed. And Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. Jesus endured the punishment that I deserved. He is our substitute. They took him up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. There they hoisted him into the air. For a few hours on that Friday, he who knew no sin became your sin. He endured an eternity's worth of condemnation in a six-hour window on that Friday. And Jesus got to the point where he just simply said, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. He died. They took his mangled body off the cross, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed him into a grave. They rolled a stone in front of it. The Romans, they even sealed the stone because they were afraid that some of his followers would come and try to steal the body and claim that he has been raised from the dead. Jesus' body stayed there for the rest of Friday, all day on Saturday, even into the early hours of Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, the foul stench of death that had once pulsated from Calvary's hill now rose a sweet aroma of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was raised from the dead. The stone was rolled away by the angel not to get Jesus out, but to get his disciples in. Come, see the place where he lay. Go, tell his disciples he is alive. Friends, this makes all the difference in the world. It was the grossest act of human history on Friday. It became the sweetest aroma of salvation on Sunday morning. Paul, five years earlier, wrote the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the apostle says, And we know our God works in all things for the good of his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our God works in all things. The all things have to include great things. And it has to include gross things. What Paul is telling the Philippians in so many words, I say to you, 
don't waste your manure. Don't waste the experience. God has given you this circumstance, this criticism, this crisis, this conflict. He's allowed you to go through this. He's allowed it so that he may fertilize your faith. You have a choice. You can rejoice at what God's going to do through your circumstance. Or you can complain. Because some reason, some way, God hasn't changed your circumstance. Like Wearsby, I say to you today, rejoice. Rejoice. Because God uses even suffering to fertilize faith in your soul. Heavenly Father, we come and bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. And Father, your word is so timely and true. We know what it is to suffer. We know the smell of crisis. And so, Father, today I pray that you will help us uh, to come to you. Maybe, maybe today we just need to come here and pray at the altar. It's open. Maybe you're drawing somebody to join this church. Perhaps you're bringing somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're calling out someone to a life of Christian service. Whatever it is that you're doing, help us to respond in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.